Philemon chapter 1, technically. And we finished Habakkuk last week. Did you guys enjoy that? What a great book. What a great book. I think, I think we spent 10 weeks in Habakkuk, and it was a blessing to me. Um, so many parallels to our modern day, wasn't there? And you read that, and for people who don't think the Bible is relevant anymore, they need to read the Bible. Amen? Because it's very relevant. And so I'm going to take a little break from the Minor Prophets. I wasn't keep doing the Minor Prophets for a while, and then I realized they're kind of depressing. And uh, I don't want Kim to start crying and getting depressed, so I... We're going to do a New Testament book, and then when we finish Philemon, i got about three weeks here, we're going to go back and do Zephaniah, I believe, or Malachi. I haven't decided yet. I think Zephaniah, though. I'm leaning towards Zephaniah. And then when we finish there, we're going to jump back to the New Testament and go into 1 John, which is just a phenomenal book. So, anyways, Philemon chapter 1. I should have said chapter 2. They've blown their minds. They've been like, well, I'm missing a page of the Bible, anyways. Let's start in verses 1 through 3. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer, and to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So what we're going to do is we're going to work through this slowly, this book, over the next three weeks, and... Uh, this week, we're just going to start with a little backstory to it. Uh, Philemon's a phenomenal book. If you, if you haven't read Philemon, I hope you have. It's only one, one, one chapter. Go home tonight and just sit and read through the whole chapter. Read through it. Phenomenal little letter. Um, it's really, it's the only letter in the New Testament. Uh, maybe Timothy or Titus might compare, but because those are the pastoral epistles, and he's kind of giving guidance to Timothy and to Titus and those Books. The other books that Paul wrote, were a lot of them are just to correct problems in the churches. They were angry letters, most of them, uh, and rightfully so. But Philemon is really just a personal letter that Paul wrote to a friend. And it's a real glimpse into the attitude and perspective of the Apostle Paul. Um, it's just a small, intimate letter that we get to kind of take a look at. This book was written by Paul from prison in Rome. To a man named Philemon. It was written around either 60 or 62 AD and was written on behalf of Onesimus, a slave who had belonged to Philemon who had run away. Now we know a few things. We know it preceded Colossians because here Onesimus is just coming to the faith and going back to Philemon. In Colossians 4 9, Onesimus is listed as a brother. So we know this is before Colossians. Philemon lived in the city of Colossae, and if you remember Colossians, when we when were in that on Sunday mornings, when we first started Colossians, Paul mentions Epaphras. He was the founding pastor, if you will, of Colossae, and another one of the elders of the church there was Philemon. We see other people from the area mentioned in the letter. So normally we have people read, who want to read around the room. We have a lot of verses in Colossians. So if somebody want to read in Colossians, you're going to read several verses in Colossians. I know your name. Jason. Thank you. I drew a blank. I'm sorry, brother. I, drew a I know your name. So you're going to see a couple of names in Philemon that are also mentioned in, in Colossians as well. So let's go through these one at a time. We'll see Onesimus mentioned in Colossians 4.9. You got Colossians 4.9? Yeah. With Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. Okay, verse 10. We see Aristarchus mentioned. Uh, uh, Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, saluteth you, and Marcus, sister's son, to Barnabas, touching whom ye receive commandments. If he come unto you, receive him. So that Mark, that Marcus he mentions there, that's, that's Mark who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Okay, uh, That's important too, because remember, Mark was the one that left Paul on that missionary journey. 
And then Paul and Barnabas ended up splitting over their disagreement over taking Mark with them. Now remember, if you remember in 2 Timothy, one of Paul's, or Paul's last letter he wrote, he asked for him to, to send Mark to him. So obviously there was a reconciliation, and here he calls Mark a faithful brother. Uh, verse 11, we see Epaphras mentioned. And Jesus, which is called Justice, who are of the circumcision, these only are my fellow workers unto the kingdom of God, which have been a comfort unto me. Epaphras, who was one of you, a servant of Christ, saluted you always, laboring fervently for you in prayers, that ye may stand perfect and complete in all the will of God. Okay, verse 14. Just, just let him hold it. I got a couple of verses. Just let him hold it. Luke, the beloved physician, and Venus, greet you. Salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Memphis, and the church which is in his house. So that Luke is the same one that wrote the Gospel of Luke, and then Demas. We all know what Demas is famous for, right? Here is a faithful laborer. And then Second Timothy, Demas has forsaken me, having loved the present world, right? And then last one, verse seventeen. And say to uh, Archippus, take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord that thou fulfilled. Okay, so that was Archippus, which he acknowledges here in verse 2 of our text. So those are a lot of the names. You're going to see those in both Philemon and Colossians as well. Thank you. So Paul had never been to Colossae. We covered that in our Sunday morning series, right? He'd never been to Colossae, but he knew Philemon and Epaphras. These men were probably converts of Paul from his ministry in Ephesus. Ephesus is about 100 miles from uh, Colossae. So when Paul went to Ephesus and did his work, really three churches sprung up from that work. The church at Ephesus, the church at Colossae, and the church at Laodicea. All three sprang from that one work there in uh, Ephesus. So they get saved by Paul in Ephesus. They return home and they start the church there in Colossae. I think this tells us a lot about ministry, doesn't it? Don't underestimate the reach of your ministry. Listen, understand that. Don't underestimate, don't make judgments based on what you can see. It's very possible that these men didn't meet Paul in Ephesus. It's very possible they heard the word in Ephesus, believed, and went and started their churches, and got hooked up with Paul later on. We don't know when we're serving Christ the effect we're going to have and how far that's going to reach. When Paul went to Ephesus, he did not plan on starting a church in Colossae or in Laodicea. But he won people there, right, who went to other places. Uh, I'm very keenly aware of this when I've done things like the Super Bowl outreaches. You're, you're, you're sharing the gospel with people literally from all over the world, all over the United States. You're, you're dropping seeds that are going to bear fruit. Who knows if they're going to get saved by hearing the word at a Super Bowl city and then go back to their home state or home country and start a church. We don't judge our ministry based on what we can see. God is often doing a work that we don't know about, something we can't understand, something we, we, our minds could not plan what God is doing through gospel ministry. See, we, 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 we calculate and we plan with all these programs, how to increase your reach and how to, how to you know, have a larger footprint for your ministry. And of course, a lot of that's just the church has become a business, right? So the same people who are advising people like me on getting these phone calls and emails and how to have a, a better reach in your ministry, they're the same people who are selling this kind of stuff to CEOs of, of corporations, how to increase your profit margin, how to increase your customer base. The ministry is not profit margins and, 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 and customer bases, right? It's human souls, eternal souls. And we, we're not the ones that win them. We're not the ones that reach the lost. The Holy Spirit does the work. We simply deliver a message, right? The message of the gospel, and we trust the Lord to do with it as he pleases. We don't strategize. 
We don't get together at the park on Saturdays. How can we be effectively reach the most amount of people? We don't do that. We stand in one place and we proclaim the gospel and we pass out tracts, we pass out Bibles, and we trust the Lord to do a work. We went out today door to door and gave tracts to homes. We don't know those people. We may never see those people. You know, someone may read a tract and get saved and never come to our church. They may go to some other church that God sends them to. That's why churches that use evangelism as a means to grow the church, in my opinion, they're so wrong. We don't do evangelism to grow our church. We do it to be faithful to the Great Commission. That's why we do it. If God grows our church or if he grows a different church through our efforts, that's his business. You know why? It's his church. I'm not the CEO. The deacons are not middle management. We're not a corporation. We are the body of Christ, and he has authority over his body. So don't judge ministry based on, are we seeing results? Let me ask you something. The night of the crucifixion, did they see any results? Could they have imagined white people speaking English in America, on the North American continent, getting together on Wednesday night to worship this Christ who was just crucified? These Jewish disciples, they could never have imagined that. They didn't know this area existed. This city didn't exist the night of the crucifixion. They couldn't have fathomed what God was doing and going to do through that event that day. That's why they went and hid. (laughs) That's why they went and locked themselves in a room. Because they couldn't fathom that one day, people from every tribe, every tongue, every people would gather around the throne and sing a new song to the Lord. Don't judge ministry based on what you can see. Are you being obedient to the word of God? If the answer is yes, then your ministry is successful, regardless of what happens. Don't underestimate where God has you. God had Paul in Ephesus, not Colossae. God didn't send him there. God didn't send him to Laodicea. He sent him to Ephesus. And through Ephesus, God put churches in two other cities. God had converts in two other cities that Paul had never been to. Now, Paul, I think, was a very humble man. Well, I've got to go there or the ministry is going to fail. No. Paul rejoiced in those ministries even though he never went there. At least at the time he wrote the letters, he never went there. Because he knew it was God's ministry. Don't judge ministry based on results. People will ask you, you ever see, what's the the question? I'm trying to word it the right way. Um, Is street preaching effective? I don't know. But it's obedient. Some people say, going door to door, is that effective? I don't know. But 125 houses today got the gospel? I don't know if it's effective. I'm not responsible for the results of it. It's as effective as the Holy Spirit decides it's going to be. Understand that. We've got to get past this idea that the church is a business. It's not. We don't think the same way as, as a business does. We don't plan that way. I've been in churches where it's all about growing the number of people in the pews and the programs and how we're going to draw them in. And once they come in, how are we going to, we're going to follow up. And listen, I, follow, I believe in following up. Someone comes to visit, we want to follow up with them. We want to see if, we, if there's any questions they have, any needs we can meet. That's, but I mean, they have this like, this like business just plan set up to just and get them in. And then they may not be faithful at first. We're going to get them in there teaching a class. That way they feel like they have to be there. We'll get them. That's not what Christ has called us to. He has not called us to build a machine. He's called us to gather and worship. He's called me to minister the word. That's what he's called us to do. 
It's not a business. We are not competing with the other churches in town. We're not. We are here because God put us here. God will bring to us who God wants to be here. And God will send to them who God wants to be there. In other words, what I'm saying is he can handle his church. I think Paul knew that. This church springing up in Colossae and Laodicea was a great example of the power of God over his church. Solid biblical churches sprang up in two cities where the apostle had never even gone. We labor, you and I, faithfully. That's what we're called to. It's required as stewards that a man be found successful? No. Faithful. Faithful. You know what I've also noticed? Pastor Max and I were talking, maybe Brother Abbott, I don't know. They're pretty indistinguishable in my mind. But I think it's Brother Abbott had said, these pastors who pastor these mega churches, most of them, 99% of them, have a real sharp business mind. And they could have built a corporation in any secular field they wanted to using the same methods they used to build the church. Think about that. We labor looking to the Lord to perform the work. We have very little control over the church of God. Very little. I mean, we take a lot of pride, you know, believing that we do, but he's sovereign over his church. I told you that story a couple weeks ago. Uh, I went to the church I went to in Bakersfield before. We had, uh, when I went there, I went there as a teenager. I left, I came back in 2010. And uh, from 2010 to 2000 and, what would you say, 13? The church is in a very dire financial situation. And it turned out it was because somebody was, one of the ushers was stealing just handfuls of cash from the offering plate. So, I mean, we were, t- we were, I mean, we were a church of 150 people taking in $300 a week in offerings because th- those were the checks he couldn't steal, right? The cash he took. So anyway, it was a really bad financial situation there. During this time, another man in the church got mad at the pastor for this or for that and decided he's going to take his ball and go play in a different playground. So he's, I'm going to leave the church. He told the pastor, he goes, I wanted to leave a long time ago, but I was worried if I left with that, and took my money, the church would shut down. The pastor told us that. I was one of the church trustees, and the pastor told us that in a meeting. My first thing out of my mouth without thinking about it was, who does he think he is? Does God need his generous contributions to keep the church running? Of course he doesn't. And our financial troubles went on for about another year before we discovered the problem. After that guy left. You know what happened when that guy left? We kept paying the bills. We kept meeting. You know why? Because contrary to his opinion, he didn't run the church. God did. I remember we came down one, uh, one week. Pastor met with us. We'd be getting three, $400 offerings regularly for years, about two years. And he met with us one night, and the pastor goes, man, if we don't get $4,000 this Sunday, we're going to have to close. And if we close, that's the Lord's will. We got $4,100 in the offering on Sunday. Blew our minds. Let me tell you, God is sovereign over his church. We have very little control over it. God provides for his church. Look at, look at First Baptist. I don't mean to delve into the past when I wasn't here, but a lot of the people who are here right now came around the time that Pastor Miller passed or just after he passed. And a lot of the people who were here before that aren't here anymore. God knew what was coming. God knew what this church needed. God put people where he wants them to keep his church going. He's sovereign. God put men in a position to lead the church. There was no real vacuum of leadership. 
People stepped in and did what they needed to do. You know why? Because God's sovereign over his church. We take far too much credit and far too much concern over things that we shouldn't be concerned about. God is sovereign over the church. If you believe that, believe he's sovereign over you too, by the way. We need to stop worrying so much and just understand that God knows exactly what he's doing. Nobody will starve that God doesn't want to starve. Nobody will be homeless that God doesn't want. No one will be jobless that God doesn't want jobless. God will always meet our needs and the needs of our church. We need only to trust him. Don't trust yourself. Don't think that any one person here is the one person we can't lose. The church will fall apart. There's only one person we cannot lose to keep our church together. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. That's it. That is it. God takes care of his church. Paul didn't know what God was doing in Ephesus, but God did it anyways. One of my favorite preachers is Harry Ironside. When he was about 10 years old, one of, one of the first gospels he's planted to him was at a D.L. Moody crusade. He heard D.L. Moody preach. D.L. Moody, when he got up to preach that night, preached to 4,000 people. He had no idea a little 10-year-old boy was on a tree limb outside the pavilion listening to him preach. But that little boy one day became the pastor of the church that Moody founded in Chicago. We don't know what God's doing. We don't know who we're witnessing to or what they're going to accomplish for Christ. They may reject a track today and get saved tomorrow. They may walk by when we're preaching and hear something that, that stirs in them something they heard when they were a child or stirs something in their conscience. And God's going to do a work in their heart. We don't know. Don't, look, don't, don't examine fruit to determine an, a, a, a ministry's value. Examine faithfulness. There was a man... He, you guys are probably familiar with Jim Elliott, lives with Elliott's husband, the five missionaries who were martyred in Ecuador. One of the men on that mission was Roger Udarian. He had been in Ecuador for, I think, like 15 years before the other men got there. And his ministry failed. He went to a tribe, and he was never able to win a convert or establish a church. And he was on the verge of returning to the United States and giving up on the ministry when he met Nate Saint, Ed McCulley, and Jim Elliott, and Pete Fleming. And he was on the mission that went to the Waodani Indians, the Alka Indians, as Olivia Daly calls them. And he died that day on that beach. And later on, within a couple of years, that entire tribe came to Christ. Those weren't 15 wasted years in Ecuador. That was preparation. Do you think he looked back from heaven and goes, oh, sorry, Lord, I wasted my life. No. Don't judge ministry by results. Be faithful where God has put you and trust that he will lead. That's all Paul did. Paul didn't think, okay, I've got to reach this whole metropolitan area for Christ. No, Paul said, God said to me to Ephesus. And I'm going to preach faithfully in Ephesus. And who God had in Ephesus? I don't know if they're just there on business or if they're just there for pleasure, but he had a man named Epaphras and a man named Philemon, both who became Christians and who went down and started a church. Then he had a man named Nymphus, and Nymphus gets saved. And Nymphus goes back to his hometown of Laodicea, and he starts a church. And Paul didn't plan that, and Paul had no idea that was going to happen. It just happened because he was faithful. Sometimes God raises fruit from gospel ministry that we never see in this life. We'll probably get into the introductions and the heart of the letter next week, but let's start in verse 1 this week. Let's look at our text for a minute. Paul, a prisoner of Jesus Christ, and Timothy, our brother, unto Philemon, our dearly beloved and fellow laborer. I love Paul's attitude, don't you? Paul, 
a prisoner of Rome, right? No. A prisoner of Caesar. No. Wrong again. A prisoner of Jesus Christ. For Jesus Christ. Paul's like, I'm not, in, I'm not a prisoner of Rome. They have no control over me. I'm not Caesar's prisoner. He has no power. Remember what Jesus said to Pilate? Pilate's like, I have power to crucify you, power to release you. Jesus is like, I don't want to be disrespectful to the Lord, but I kind of hope he had a smirk on it. Like, you have no power over me except what's given to you from above. What a joke. Pilate, don't you realize who I am, the power I have? That goes along with that verse we read on Sunday, right? He who sits in the heavens laughs. <laughs> really? Think you have power over me? Paul's like, Rome has no power. Caesar has no power. I'm here because Christ has me here. That's why I'm in prison. Christ, I'm his prisoner. He wasn't in prison over any sin or any crime that he committed. He was in prison for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. He calls Philemon dearly beloved and a fellow laborer. This man is well reported of, as we're going to see here in a bit. Philemon is, by all accounts, a true Christian who lives what he believes. Isn't that refreshing? Man, we're so short of those kind of people in our day and age, aren't we? I mean, just real Christians. People who believe something and they live by it. There's far too many Calvinists in our world today who don't believe in the sovereignty of God in a, in a real way. I mean, they, they use the term, but when you watch them make decisions, like, do you even trust God at all? They don't, they don't live what they claim to believe. Or just Christians in general. They don't truly live their principles. That wasn't Philemon. Philemon lived... Listen, if we're going to sit in here and tout the sovereignty of God, don't you think we ought to believe that God is sovereign? We do. If we're going to tout that God is sovereign over his church, shouldn't we act like it? I love when I talk to Reuben and Jason. Problems come up and they're just like, God will take care of it. God will handle it. You know, they're not being lazy or flippant. They're being consistent with what they believe. God will take care of his church. You and I need to make sure we're not being one way in here and one way out there. Amen. Be who you are. If you're a Christian, be a Christian all the time. Not just here. If you trust God, don't just say amen when I say it. Live it out there. Then truly trust him. Throw yourself at the mercy of God and say, God, I'm going to live for you. And if everything falls and fails, at least I trust it by your decree. Of course, David said, I've never seen the righteous forsaken nor a seed begging bread. We have scripture on that. Nobody will ever trust God and be sorry for it. Be who you are. Be a Christian. That's Philemon's whole testimony in this book. Paul, and we'll see it over and over again in the next two weeks, he was what he claimed to be. And Paul, over and over again, is like, I trust that you're going to do this. I know that you're going to do this. I know you're going to do what I say. Because he knows the character of Philemon. He was a true Christian all the time. Some see the use of fellow laborer as a sign that Philemon once traveled and worked with Paul. I see it merely as a Fellow laborer in the gospel kind of statement. Paul is working in his journeys, Philemon and Colossae. Look at verse 2 and 3. And to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier, to the church in thy house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul mentions a greeting for Aphia, who I understand to be the wife of Philemon, as well as Archippus, who I understand to be the son of Philemon. This comes mostly from tradition, but we can use some, get some clues from the scriptures as well. Notice Paul singles out those two along with Philemon to our beloved Aphia and Archippus, our fellow soldier. And then he says, and to the church in thy house. If they were simply members of the church, they would have been included in there. The fact that he singles them out like he does Philemon tells me he's greeting the family and then the church. 
There is a tradition that Archippus was a leader in the Laodicean church, but it seems unlikely that Paul would send a greeting to one church leader through another and not in a letter directly. Remember, he says in, uh, he says in uh, Colossians to greet Nymphus and the church at Laodicea. But in Colossians, he greets Archippus separately. So I don't believe we can deduce from that that Archippus is in Laodicea. I think he's a member of Philemon's household living in Colossae at the time. We have no indication that Philemon was a, a letter to be passed around. If you remember, I mentioned when I did Colossians, uh, the first or second week of Colossians, we talked about how Colossians and Ephesians were circular letters. They circulated around the churches in the area. Well, I, don't, I don't get the idea that Philemon is that kind of letter. I think it was just a letter from Paul to Philemon. So I think it's evident that the church of Colossae met in Philemon's home. In Colossians 4.15, we have mention of another church. It says, salute the brethren which are in Laodicea and Nymphus and the church which is in his house. So he's telling them to salute the church in Laodicea because the two churches were close together. Colossians 4.16 says, And when this epistle is read among you, cause it to be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So I take it that the Laodicean church met in the house of Nymphus, and the Colossian church met in the house of Philemon. So that brings us to the end of our short text. In the handout, I've included the next part for you to take home with you, and it is themes of the book of Philemon that we're going to look at. Themes of the book. The first theme is the sovereignty of God. I want you to understand, I think I misspoke earlier. I said Ephesus was 100 miles from Colossae. I think it was actually Rome was 100 miles from Colossae. I think Ephesus was closer. Anyways, I think Ephesus was like 20 miles away. I'll, I'll figure all that out. Anyways, the sovereignty of God. Onesimus runs away from Philemon, travels at least 100 miles to the metropolis of Rome, gets arrested, apparently, gets imprisoned within the vicinity of the Apostle Paul, who happens to know, just happens to know, Philemon, and gets saved. That is a picture of the sovereignty of God over salvation. That would take a lot of coincidences, wouldn't it? First of all, just getting to Rome was a long journey. Here's a runaway slave who had very little means. He gets there. I'm going to just jump out and guess that when he got there, he had no money left. We know from the letter that he steals something from Philemon because Paul offers to pay him back for it. Probably had no money left when he got there. Probably stole something. Probably got arrested. Do you think Rome had one prison? No. They had several. It was a big city. Over a million people were in Rome. So this runaway slave travels over 100 miles to a city of over a million people and just happens to get arrested and put in prison next to someone named Paul who happened to know Philemon, his master, who gave him the gospel. That's not coincidence. If nothing else, church, we can look at this situation in Philemon and say, wow, God knows what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. I read a story once. It's an amazing story. It was, uh, an American, I don't want to get it wrong, but you'll know where I'm going with it when I say it, but I, may get it. I have to look it up. An American soldier from World War II shot down a Japanese soldier. The Japanese soldier survived and got saved and wrote a tract. That American soldier, after the war, was visiting Japan, and somebody handed him a tract written by the man he had shot down who got saved. God knows what he's doing. None of that is coincidence. The fact that you heard the gospel, God knew what he was doing. God puts you in the right place at the right time. I love telling my grandma's salvation story, so I'll tell it to you. I don't know if I have. I have it here before. My grandmother was kind of the matriarch of our family in terms of getting saved. She was the first to get saved that led to the rest of the family getting saved. She, uh, well, let me come back up a little bit. My mom 
married my dad. And my grandma was angry about it. So angry they stopped talking. And that led to problems in my grandmother's marriage. They were kind of on the rocks for a little while. One day she went to her dog groomer who worked out of her house there in the Bay Area. And she wasn't there, but her mother was. They were a Christian family. And uh, so she sat and talked to the mother, shared her heartaches, shared the problems in the family. As she was leaving, the groomer came home and they made an appointment. And she always invited my grandma to church. My grandma always said no. And this particular day, she asked her to come to church. My grandma said, yes. And she even says, I was happy about it. But she said, it's like somebody else is speaking through me. She was like, I got in my car and I came to myself. And I thought, what am I doing? I don't want to go to church. But she had promised and she was a lady of her word. So she went to Sunday school that next Sunday. And the preacher, who had no idea she was coming, no idea of the troubles in her life, he was preaching on Pharaoh, hardening his heart. And in the middle of that, I mean, there was no altar call, none of that kind of stuff. In the middle of that sermon, my grandma, she said, she said it's like my eyes were opened, and I realized I've been hardening my heart and causing the problems in my family. When I realized that, I saw basically all my sin. And she said she felt just all like her, like a big coat of burdens just slipped off of her shoulders. And she was a new person. That preacher had no idea she was coming or what she was going through. In Philemon, we see the sovereignty of God. In my grandmother's salvation, I see the sovereignty of God. In my own salvation, I see the sovereignty of God. God knows what he's doing. Trust him. Trust him. It's amazing how much we trust ourselves, isn't it? You ever been wrong before? Sure. Yeah, me too. But I still trust myself. God's never been wrong. You know what's going to happen tomorrow? Me either. God does. We can trust him. So the overarching theme of Philemon is the sovereignty of God. Onesimus didn't just happen to be in the right place at the right time. God brought him out of the slavery. He, God had him run away. Make it to Rome. God made sure he didn't have enough money so he get arrested. He made sure the guy next to Paul got released when he did, so there's an open seat. God orchestrated this whole thing. Secondly, forgiveness. Onesimus had run away from Philemon and maybe even stolen from him prior to leaving. Paul urges him to forgive Onesimus everything. Christians should be supernatural forgivers. Honestly. We've been forgiven so much. We should not withhold forgiveness from others. The world can forgive. So forgiving is not the key. There's something unique about Christian forgiveness that the world can't understand. Right? Because the world forgives for selfish reasons. You made it up to me, and I'll forgive you. You apologized, now I'll forgive you. The Christian doesn't require that. The Christian forgives because Christ has forgiven them. I, I was thinking, I saw my notes, but I was thinking about, you guys know the story of Corey Ten Boom with the uh, soldier from the concentration camp. I'll, I'll tell you again because I, like, I like telling the story. She was preaching in Germany on forgiveness. At the end of the service, a man walks up with his ha coat or his ha hat in his hand. And he said, I, I heard you mention Ravensbrück. I was, a, I was a guard there. You probably don't remember me. 
But she says in her book, oh, I remembered him. He was one of the most vicious guards that was there. She still remembered him beating her sister because she was too sick and weak to work. And he said to her, Fraulein, I've been saved since then. God has forgiven me, but I want to ask you to forgive me too. And he stretched out his hand. And Corey Tenboom admitted, I didn't want to forgive him. But could I, who just spoke on forgiveness, withhold forgiveness from him? So she said, I can do the motions, I can do the mechanics, I can shake his hand. But in her heart, she cried out to the Holy Spirit and said, you're going to have to provide the, the feeling for it. And the minute she touched his hand, she said it was like an electrical shock, went down her shoulder, down her arm, to where their hands met. And she was, my heart was filled with love for the man. Because Christ has forgiven us, we should be forgiving people. Forgiveness is an overarching theme of Philemon. Philemon, he's wronged you, but you've wronged God. Forgive, forgive. To whom much is forgiven, or to whom much is given, much is required. If you've been a sinner and you're honest with yourself, you've been forgiven much. You should forgive much. Number three, slavery. It's an uncomfortable topic here. While not overturning the practice of slavery, Paul tells Philemon to treat Onesimus as a brother. The institution cannot stand if slaves are treated as equals. Paul was not in the position to change society. He didn't say, you know, release all your slaves. So here's what you're going to do. You're going to treat him like a brother. Let me tell you something, guys. You can't own a brother. He's not property. Everywhere the gospel has gone, slavery has been overturned. Because we are to treat every person as an image bearer of God. The gospel has been a great emancipation tool, hasn't it? In America, we did it by war because we're stubborn. We're stubborn, ignorant people. In fact, the South was largely slave owning, and the South was largely Christian. Shame on them. Shame on them. So you can't look back in time and put today's values on the yes, I can, because they're biblical values. Shame on them. But you look at places like England. It was the power of the gospel that led to the end of slavery over there and everywhere else as well. I heard from a missionary a couple months ago who spent 20-something years in Fiji. He said when missionaries first got to Fiji, they were cannibals. Everywhere the gospel has gone, it's ended cannibalism. It's ended savagery. You know the tribe that the Elliot, that group was taking the gospel to? They were the most savage tribe known to man at the time. They had never had peaceful contact with white men. They ran around naked. Today, they're fully clothed. They're fully clothed. Not killing each other anymore. Not savages. They're civilized people because of the gospel. Slavery exists where the gospel is scarce, but dies where it thrives. So Paul's message to Philemon, he's not your property. He's your brother. Treat him as such. And number four, duty means more to a Christian than rights. That's an important one. A theme of Philemon, duty means more to a Christian than your rights. Understand that. Under both the Mosaic and Roman law, Philemon had the right to punish Onesimus. But Paul reminds him that his right as a Roman citizen did not trump his responsibility as a Christian to forgive and treat him as a brother. We, have, I know we live in America, and I know it's a popular thing to run around, my rights, my rights, my rights. Where those rights come into conflict with the Bible, we have no right to those rights. Our duty is to Christ. He's our king. That's our country. Matthew 26, 51 to 54. Let me go ahead and read that one real quick. Matthew. Mark, Luke, John, there we go. Matthew 
26. <clears throat> and I failed at making this short, so I, once again, my promises are worth nothing. If I say it's going to be short, don't ever listen to me. Matthew 26, 51 to 54. And behold, one of them which were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck a servant of the high priest and smote off his ear. Then said Jesus unto him, Put up again thy sword into his place, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my Father, he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled, that thus it must be? Question. Was Jesus right? Did he have the right as the Son of God to ask his Father to send angels to rescue him? Yes. He absolutely had that right. And then he said, but how is it going to be that the scriptures be fulfilled? In other words, Jesus said, I have no right to that right. I have no claim on that right. My right right now is the duty that God the Father has sent me to accomplish. Christian, rights are a wonderful thing. We have the right to worship them tonight, don't we? Amen. That's wonderful. But when our rights... As Americans conflict with our rights as Christians, our duty as Christians, duty comes first. We're Christians first, Americans second. Don't cry, my I have the right to do this. You may have the right, but is it right to do it? You know, Joseph had the right to put Mary to death when she came up pregnant. You guys understand that, right? Under Levitical law, he had the right to have her put to death. But... It says, Joseph being a just man. Isn't that interesting? You would think a just man would be the person who goes by the law. But he realized, he realized, I'm going to have mercy. I'm not going to make her a public example. I'm just going to put her away quietly over here. I don't want to bring sorrow. Or In other words, he had no right to the legal right that he had. The overwhelming themes of this book, we're going to look at in the next couple of weeks, the sovereignty of God. God knows what he's doing. God's directing everything. God directed Onesimus to run away. God directed him to steal enough money to get where he needed to go. God directed him to, to get caught, to end it by Paul, to hear the gospel, to get saved, to go back to Philemon. God orchestrated all of that. Don't put too much wisdom. We all have people who want to be saved. Don't trust yourself to be cunning and wise and smart enough to get them saved. God will orchestrate what he wants to orchestrate. Don't worry about growing the church. God will orchestrate what he wants to orchestrate. Just be faithful and trust the sovereign God. Forgiveness. Have you been forgiven? then you have to forgive. Have to. And like not the forgiveness of the world. A different kind, a supernatural forgiveness, a forgiveness the world can't touch. I don't think slavery is a problem in our church today. But you know what? It still goes on in the world, doesn't it? And it's not what you think it is. It's not always like what we saw here. There's a lot of girls walking around on these streets who are enslaved. That's, what we, that's why we preach. The gospel is the death of slavery. It's the death of slavery. And duty. Christian duty. Don't ever cherish your rights as an American, over your duty as a Christian. Our sole duty is to God. And Paul makes sure and Philemon remembers that. You have a duty. You could punish him. You have the right to do it. It's not. And you know, Paul probably could have included in there, if, he, if the Holy Spirit had let him do, Philemon, you can punish him. And I can't even say it's a sin for you to do it. Technically. But let me remind you, you are a Christian. God has forgiven you much. He's a brother. Do that likewise.
There's a lot of things that you and I have a right to that may not even be bad things. But do they glorify Christ? Will they bring honor to the name of Christ? Will they further our Christian lives? If not, then maybe we need to just, just refrain from that and say our duty is to Christ. If the order is to close our church, our duty is to Christ. If the order is to stop preaching in the open air, our duty is to Christ. If the order is away from the abortion clinic, our duty is to Christ. Our duty trumps our rights. We are servants of Christ. I look forward to getting into this book more in the next couple of weeks. Any questions before we close in prayer? Anything at all? Comments? Thoughts? If nothing either, we'll just, all right, let's make sure I don't miss anything. All right, let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this evening and this time together, Lord. This kind of brief introduction to the book of Philemon. I'm excited to get into this book, Lord. There's so much in here, so much meat in one chapter that you've laid out for us, Lord. May we grab a hold of these themes, Lord, themes like forgiveness, themes like the sovereignty of God. May we trust you more after studying this book, Lord. Things like Christian duty. There are things that we have a right to, but your commands come first. I think about a man I knew, Lord. You know his name. He even escapes me right now. Who talked about being a missionary. But you'd given him all this money and this business and he wanted to build a home for his family. That was, that was his right to do that. But if you're calling us to the ministry, we don't have a right to that. Other men may have a right to that. And he chose that way. He no longer serves you. Sometimes there's good things. We have, as Christians have to say, I can't partake of that because... I have to obey Christ. Lord, help us to trust you. Like children with a parent. Help us just to take your hand and follow your lead. He that keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. And he who leads and guides our church our families, our lives. You don't slumber, you don't sleep, you don't take vacations. You have it all planned out. Help us to lead or follow. Help us to follow, Lord. I remember when I was five years old, I trusted my parents implicitly with everything. Give me that same childlike faith to follow you, Lord. Help me to forgive better, to trust better. Help me to be faithful to my duty as a believer, as a minister, over any right that I feel I have. I lay all my rights at the cross. I lay all my rights at your throne, subject to you. We have no king but Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. You're dismissed.